It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. AI, you know, on all of these technologies don't respect borders. They're genuinely, genuinely international issues and those are going to require an international approach. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Jennifer Jacket, a Sir Roland Wilson Scholar at the National Security College. This podcast episode is being recorded at the University of Oxford. The National Security Podcast is published by the ANU National Security College, which is on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today, it is a privilege to be joined by Jonathan Black. Jonathan is the Haywood Fellow at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Jonathan has previously served as the UK's Deputy National Security Advisor and G7 and G20 Sherpa. He was also the senior official responsible for overseeing the UK's economic policy response to the invasion of Ukraine and coordination of that response with international partners. Most recently, Jonathan was appointed by the British Prime Minister to coordinate the landmark Artificial Intelligence Safety Summit held at Bletchley Park in early November. There are very few people so well-placed to discuss issues of economic and security policymaking, as well as technology and geopolitics. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jennifer, and it's nice to be with you. So with the AI Safety Summit, we know that applications of artificial intelligence like ChatGBT are front of mind for governments, businesses, academia, and civil society. On the one hand, we hear about the vast opportunities that AI could create for diverse sectors like health, transport, agriculture, and law enforcement. But there are also many growing concerns around how artificial intelligence could be used and the issues around privacy, bias, disinformation, and how they might even be incorporated into lethal weapon systems. Industry leaders like OpenAI co-founder Elon Musk and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak have issued warnings even about the dangers of AI and urged a pause in the development of powerful AI systems. Jonathan, you've really been at the centre of these issues and debates, most recently convening the groundbreaking international talks on AI safety. Could you start by explaining what the British government was looking to achieve out of the AI Safety Summit, the key challenges that the British government was hoping to address, and how this fits into how the UK thinks about its economic and foreign policy priorities? Thanks, Jennifer, and it's great to be with you. I think the last time we saw each other was on the other side of the world in Canberra about six months ago, and uh, a lot has happened in that six months, in particular on AI, and that's 
really what prompted the Prime Minister to want to host this summit. The, the pace of technological transformation that's happening is, is quite incredible and indeed even faster than, uh, even faster than we thought it probably, it probably would be. And at least this Prime Minister starts with a, a, a sort of fundamentally sort of optimistic view about what technology can mean. And you, you talked about some of those things in, in, in your introduction. But also, as with all of these things, it brings some, some real risks as well. And on AI, we're just at the beginning of, of that conversation. And so you asked me, what's the, what was the, the sort of the main motivation for the, for hosting the summit? And it was really that conversation that we are still at the beginning of where the world will end up on how it, how the sort of ecosystem, if you like, for AI will look. Um, and with, and because we're only at the beginning of that, actually that conversation that brings together governments, that brings together companies and bits of civil society is incredibly important. So the summit's first aim was actually just that, that sense of trying to convene, uh, that right group of people to start that conversation. This is such a complex area of policy. I mean, AI has the potential to disrupt and touch every sector. Um, and impact all of us across society. So with a conversation like that, where do you start the conversation? It's a really good question. And we, we sort of tried to address it by having quite a narrow focus to what the summit, the summit was about. We focused very specifically on, on safety and in particular around safety of what we call frontier models. So those sort of general models or, or, or narrow ones where some of the, some of the risks are are most acute. So in areas like biosecurity, cybersecurity, etc. Now that was not to say the other risks aren't important, whether it's things around the sort of social risks, around disinformation, misinformation, or indeed some of the, the sort of broader ones around the, the, the transformation and the and the, the transition that this this technology will mean. But we tried to focus in on that on that very specific area because it was an area that we felt actually hadn't quite had enough attention. And even if some of those risks are, if you like, low in likelihood, their impact would be would be very, very high. And I, I think that was the I think that was the right decision. In the end, the summit ended up, as these things always do, being quite a broad conversation. But if you're trying to convene a, a group of people, it's quite important also to have a, a sort of a focus to that as well. In terms of the right stakeholders to convene, who was actually involved in the summit? And moving forward, are there others that you see as important to including in this conversation? Again, a, a really good question. And, it, and just like we had to sort of narrow the focus of the substance, if you like, we had to, we had to be quite narrow and focused on, on who attended as well. I said in, in my first answer to you that what we were trying to do was have a conversation. And I do think on this issue, actually just the fact that the conversation happens is substantively important. But you can't have a conversation in a, in a of, of the kind that we were looking to do with you know, thousands and thousands of people. So we ended up trying to, to limit it to a smaller number of between a sort of 100 and 150 people. That inevitably meant making actually some quite tough choices about who, 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 we, should, who we should invite. What it did, though, mean was that when the, with the people there, we were able to get into a lot of depth. And so we decided to, to bring, try and bring together governments. And so we brought about 25 to 30 different countries and some of the international institutions, uh, civil society, and then also business, particularly focused on developers and de the deployers of technology rather than, rather than users. And to your question on 
on who else. I mean, I think you know one of the things about where AI will go in terms of how we try and govern it is that we're going to have to approach it in a slightly different way to the way we've done things before, I think, which is going to have to be much more, much more multi-stakeholder, bringing together states, business, civil society interests. And that is inevitably going to be quite complicated. So I think as this debate goes on, we need to find ways of broadening it out, um, bringing in others. Within the small group we had, we worked hard to try and make sure it was representative and inclusive, but obviously that's difficult by definition with 100 people, and it's something that needs to involve many, many thousands. And with the different stakeholders that you had there, there were, of course, representatives from other governments that might not share the same interests or values or even political systems. What was the value of having a diverse range of countries, including countries like China, in these complex conversations around AI governance? Well, we made a very deliberate decision to invite China um, to to join the, the summit. And indeed, we made a deliberate decision to try and have a, a sort of broad representation of countries. So we had countries from every continent. Um, we had countries from the sort of inverted commas, global north and global south, uh, etc. And that was that was principally because AI, I mean, this is a sort of slightly sort of glib cliche, but AI, you know, on all of these technologies don't respect borders. They're genuinely, genuinely international issues and that are going to require an international approach. And China is, on most metrics, the, the, the second largest in inverted commas AI power in, in the world. And that, that was the sort of, if you like, the driver for the, for wanting to invite them, but it, but indeed invite, invite others as well. I mean, maybe we'll, we'll come on to this. I mean, it's going to how we approach some of these issues is gonna it's going to be complicated. As you rightly touched on in your question, there are areas where international collaboration genuinely across the full all range of sort of full range of the ge- geopolitical spectrum and geographical spectrum will make sense. And there'll be areas where because we have different approaches, different values, different systems, uh, that sort of collaboration won't be possible. And that's that's if you like a sort of fact of the context, and but I think you still start from the fact that when you're trying to look at a set a, a global issue of this kind, that the conversation needs to be global. With that in mind, and the areas where we can cooperate in a more global context, what were the outcomes and next steps of of the summit? How will this conversation be taken forward among this group? So. And so building on what we were just saying before, we, we actually try to sort of reflect the fact that there will be a, if you like, a bit of variable geometry in how we, how we take forward some of these issues. In process terms, the South Koreans will co-host a further sort of check-in summit with us next, early next year or mid next year. And then France will host another version of this summit later in the year. So I hope the sort of the dialogue could continue in this format, but also in the other ones as well, whether it's GPI, which is, happening around now in India or whether it's in the G7 or the G20 or the UN or, or what have you. There were two areas in particular that we tried to try to sort of focus on as actions out of the summit. One was a one was a sort of genuinely global one involving all of the participants and uh, that was reflected in the so-called Bletchley Declaration which all of the countries signed up to and what we were trying to say with that is as a starting point you need to have common understanding of what the risks that you're trying to address are and have a shared view that that understanding needs to be informed by science and that's what we that's that was that was the thing we tried to do there and we agreed also to set up this set up a 
a group chaired by Joshua Bengio, who's a, a leading Canadian AI scientist, on providing some providing a report for for governments on where the risks at the frontier lie as part of that process, and that will now be picked up, I hope, as well by the UN. So that bit was a was the sort of genuinely global bit, if you like. The other bit we tried to do was with a sort of smaller group of of countries with more sort of similar systems to ours was to say how do we as governments and the the big AI developers work together on developing a, a regime for sort of testing for the safety of their emerging of their emerging AI models and that was the that was the second thing that we that we tried to make as a as an output. One of the really interesting developments around AI governance is we have both this international context of cooperation and dialogue, but at the same time, countries are moving themselves to develop national regulations. I think it was the week of the AI Safety Summit that President Biden in the US released the executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy AI. We've also seen other countries like China issue their own detailed regulations around artificial intelligence and at this moment, the European Union is in the final stages of finalising a regulatory framework for AI. On top of that, private companies themselves are working through their own internal governance for artificial intelligence. So I'm just wondering, uh, I'm interested in your perspective on how the multilateral efforts and this convening of the AI Safety Summit interact with some of those domestic efforts too. Yeah, well, for the summit, we try to be what, what I sort of said is upstream of the regulatory question. So we tried to focus on saying, how do you have a shared understanding of what the, the challenge or the problem or the risks are? What might be a, at least amongst a sort of a group of like-minded countries, what might be a shared approach to sort of testing for some of those things? Those two things can happen, if you like, sort of agno- can be agnostic to what your, your policy and regulatory regime should be. And we deliberately, at the summit, tried to sort of stay out of those regulatory questions. But the, but the question you ask is a good one. And, um, I, and it, it sort of touches on what I was saying before, which is I think inevitably we are going to end up having quite a mixed economy or a sort of variable geometry in how we go about approaching how we go about approaching regulation and the rules on on AI globally. In many areas, we'll have our own our own rules in our own jurisdictions. In other areas, we might try and find a way of aligning them. And I, I think that inevitably we're therefore going to have quite a, as I say, quite a complicated picture. But I don't think we should see AI as being sort of unique in that. You know, if you think of something like financial services and financial regulation, we have areas, particularly since the the global uh, financial crisis, where we do try and have a sort of underlying, if you almost like, sort of safety net for financial stability that all countries participate in through the G20, through the FSB, et cetera, through the Financial Stability Board, et cetera. But then on top of that, everyone has their own regimes, including for both sort of protecting the stability and of their regimes, but also for encouraging competition between each other. And so that's just one area where that already happens. And I think AI will be will be the same but potentially a bit more complicated just because the technology is so complex, the pace of change is so complex, and the geopolitics is obviously complex. But it's it's not a new thing that we'll end up with that sort of diversity of approach. Yeah, and that it's an important point too, maybe to to note that AI is not one thing. There's going to be many different applications of AI systems in different sectors. So the way in which you might look to regulate that and the mechanisms through which you do that will naturally be many and and varied. 
In terms of the role of the private sector in these conversations, how do you see them playing in the sort of national regulatory space or even the international mm-hmm. regulatory space? So, I mean, and your point just there was was absolutely right, by the way. I mean, AI is not a it's not a new thing that suddenly you know exists now and didn't exist and didn't exist before, and it also exists in the world as as, as we have it. And there are many areas, whether it's copyright rules or, or those sorts of things, which will apply to AI as much as they apply they apply to anything else, and that informs quite a lot of how the UK government's thinking about how it will it will approach um, its policy regime. So, so you're right on that. on the On the question of um, on the question of of, of business, I think there's a. I mean, this is where there's a really interesting question, and I, I don't, I don't claim, I don't claim to have the answer. And indeed, what you've seen has sort of been happening with um, everything that happened with OpenAI um, over the past few over the past few weeks. Sort of illustrates illustrates the point that you know there's a huge uh, there's a huge set of questions within AI itself about you know, the, the role it can play for the good of humanity, but obviously the role it plays is a huge sort of economic advantage either for the companies involved or the countries where it's where it's based. And there's you know that's that's something that interacts with not just within the companies but with with governments as 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 well. And then you've got a question about what is the right role for a good approach, if you like, for want a better word, by by companies with in, in a sort of voluntary structures with the sort of things that governments might might choose to impose. Now, again, that's not a that's not a new that's not a new uh, that's not a new sort of dilemma for AI to anything else. But it is a more it is a more complicated one, partly because you know these these big companies are, are, are you know are such big players and so dominant in the um, in in the, in the R and D part of the field in a way that's actually different to to the sorts of technological advantages that you saw in in, in areas after this after for example after the second world the second world war so there are some quite big questions I think about what will end up being the right balance between the role of the state and the role of actors in the market and and we're only beginning to just to just touch on some of that those questions I think yeah and given there are a concentrated handful of big technology companies that are playing a role in in the development and deployment of AI. There's also a question around how to engage smaller or medium enterprises in this conversation too, given that they may not wield the same market power, but uh, they're as important to to the discussion and to informing policy in this area. 100%. And, you know, that's why we tried with the summit, for example, to Make sure that we didn't. We did have the big, the big companies there, but also to have to have other smaller ones as as well. But you're 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 right about that, and that's always one of the dilemmas that you that you face when you think about potentially introducing rules and rules and regulations that you introduce barriers to entry and also entrench, um, you know, the current the current incumbents. And I think that does need to that does need to guide us. You've seen that's been one of the points that. Um, has been made by someone they're looking at what the European Union have been has, is is doing and certainly I think if we end up I mean this is just a sort of personal view but if we end up introducing sort of rules around sort of safety some of the questions that we talked about in the summit so quite a narrow area we will need to think about what thresholds look like um, so that you can continue to encourage encourage innovation um, but that's a difficult balance that's a difficult a good difficult balance to get right especially when you're talking about those sort of more extreme risks around things like biosecurity or cybersecurity or what have you, because it can actually only take a, a small thing to have a potentially very large impact. So it's not it's not straightforward. But um, this question of of 
making sure that whatever sort of policy regime we put in place allows for innovation to take place is, is like absolutely critical. And I guess that speaks to this um, broader desire of nation states to retain a technological edge in, in the technologies of the future. And we've mm. seen this broader agenda outside of artificial intelligence around economic security and yeah. investment by countries in advanced technologies, but also an increased tendency towards mechanisms like industrial policy to incentivize their businesses in certain areas and also an increased protection agenda in areas like investment screening or export controls to restrict other countries' access to more sensitive technologies, especially where there might be a military application. So I'm just wondering how you see, I guess, this broader impact of geopolitics, not just around artificial intelligence, but technology generally impacting the way countries are making economic policy, especially in the context of the United Kingdom? So I think we are, I think we're heading into a, a period of much more complexity and uncertainty in the policy making environment, driven a bit by the level of global integra economic integration that's already there. The, the sort of shift, if you like, in the nature of geopolitical competition a lot of which is playing out in that economic space. And then also the sort of range of wider global trends like climate change, migration, and you just mentioned it, probably above all technology, all of which is sort of adding to that intensity of competition, but also to the complexity of, of the environment. Because what you now see is that issues that are quite traditionally often sort of separate domains like economics and security or domestic and international are now much more intertwined than they've ever they've ever been before. And that is presenting some quite profound challenges for policy and, and for policy making. And you know, you just touched on, on on it for economic policy. And I think we're going through probably the biggest reimagining of at least microeconomic policy in, in 40 years as countries try and uh, price security risk into their economic policy. Um, that's leading to quite a lot of innovation in industrial policy and in innovation policy it, it, itself. Um, I think that sort of, if you like, that sort of arc of innovation and sort of evolving policy is, is only, is only just beginning. Um, but you're, you're seeing that period now of flux where this sort of, this intertwining of these different interests is, 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 is raising some quite, some quite big challenges um, for how we go about, as I say, doing both policy, but also the sort of policy making underneath it. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience 
and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. With those profound shifts in how national governments are approaching issues like industrial policy or innovation policy, what does that mean globally for the international economy, for globalisation? You sometimes hear reports or commentary that we're entering this new post-globalisation era, there's more fragmentation, perhaps even deglobalization, but mm. trade is continuing apace. So what's your assessment of of the current state of the international economy and the period that we're in currently? So I um we've spent a bit of time looking at this at, at this 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 year. I think that um you know as you say if you look at the if you just look at the sort of the, the facts um that a global economy remains today more integrated than than at any point in the past. Now it's true that the sort of pace of Further integration has slowed, but has broadly slowed actually quite since the financial crisis. Um, and you're seeing within that, you are seeing some quite big changes. I think, you know, maybe you'd call it re-globalization, if you like, as, com- com- as companies um, reorientate some of their supply chains, some of which is driven by um, geopolitics, actually some of which is just driven by more, more traditional sort of interests around the bottom, the bottom line. And that is seeing a, a sort of deconcentration, if you like, in, in supply chain as companies look to sort of manage and diversify some of their risk. But, you, but you're not seeing, and, and you're right about this, a sort of significant retrenchment in um, the level of global economic integration overall. And, you know, there's still a lot more to come in areas like services and, and data, for example, potentially. So it's, a, it's quite a complicated picture. What I would say is I think we have decisively moved out of, if you like, the first phase of sort of globalization. And we're now into a we're now into a new one. And a lot of what you've just sort of talked about there around the sort of the shifting policy context um, is is relevant to it. So it's going to be it's going to be different. But I don't think it's I don't think we've yet seen evidence of a, a significant of a significant reversal. In terms of the role of now de-risking, previously decoupling in how the international economy is evolving. Noting what you've just said, what impact do you think those policy agendas are likely to have on the international economy? Do you see it as likely just being targeted in some very specific areas of technology like semiconductors, like telecommunications, uh, or could that result in some broader shift in the international economy and the state of globalization moving forward? Yeah, so I, th- I think there's actually an important difference between decoupling and de-risking, at least in concept. And I think it's worth just pausing on it for a minute about why, because I think, and I'll come on to it about why de-risking is not a sort of a simple solution, but it, it, it does recognize the complexity. And, and that there is a is a spectrum, and you know the world is so deeply integrated today. I mean, if you just think about China and the US, I think they're each other's third largest trading partners, counting sort of somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of each other's trade. You know, the Soviet Union and the US were never really more than a percent of each other's trade. So it's just it's it's the scale is is, is so different, and 
know, quite a lot of that trade is in, you know, in inverted commas, normal things, if you like, which, um, uh, which, which there is sort of, there isn't so much risk around. So I think that the concept of de-risking is a good one in, in principle. The challenge comes in practice, because even if you focus on saying areas where there is a sort of technology, areas of sort of sensitive technology, um, where there might be a sort of national security risk. That is quite narrow in theory, but in practice, I mean, you know, we've just touched on this with AI. I mean, AI will change almost every aspect of different bits of the economy. So where you draw some of those lines in, in practice will be, will be quite difficult. I have to say, my own view is there isn't a hard and fast rule to it. I mean, I think that, um, it's why I sort of, I like de-risking as a concept, because I think it, it as I say, it recognizes the nuance. You then just need really good process underneath it to, to um to make a set of judgments but it does mean that we are going to see in some areas um it does mean in some areas we're going to see a, a very different global economy to what it might have been had there not been uh had there not been a sort of shift in some of the context and some of the policy that we've just talked about and this speaks to a broader challenge that governments are facing as they try and navigate economic interdependence amid growing uncertainty in the geopolitical environment. And I know that your Haywood Fellowship at Oxford is focused on how policymakers can better navigate these cross-cutting security and economic issues. So maybe if we can turn to some of the research that you've been doing and the lessons that you've learned about how governments can grapple with growing complexity and uncertainty on some of these big policy questions. Yeah, I mean, I could say say a lot about about, about this because what we've been thinking about for quite a bit of the year. But I mean, I said when I was sort of talking about how the sort of shifting context is having quite profound implications for policy, and it is. And we just talked, by the way, about economic policy. You could say the same for security. You know, when the biggest security crisis in Europe for 80 years. It was actually economic levers that were our sort of first response. Um, and that's going to force us just as we, we're having to reimagine economic, the sort of economic policy, we're having to reimagine what our security architectures, I think, look like as well. So the, the implications of policy are very, are very profound, but they are for policymaking, policymaking too. And I sort of touched on this, that economics and security are traditionally very very distinct domains. And actually, one of the things that our research and engagement, and we've spoken to or surveyed over a thousand people and organizations over the last year, that has shown that those there is a lot of goodwill between the sort of different communities, traditionally sort of distinct domains to collaborate better on some of these sort of intersectional questions, but also that those cultural differences are still very deep-rooted. And, um, you know, they, they go into sort of everything right through into sort of the more intellectual sense of different conceptions of what risk looks, looks like. So policymaking is going to have to work very hard, I think, to make a quite a significant step change in how it does, how it takes a sort of an instinctively integrated approach to some of these issues uh, going into the future. And that's going to involve looking at our systems and our structures. It's going to look at involve looking at how we use information and use technology to transform the way we do that. It's going to involve thinking very differently about how business and government work together, about how countries work together. And above all, it's going to require, I think, reimagining what excellence looks like in, in what you ask of your people and how they and, and how they're experiences and their expertise evolve so it's a i think there's a there's no sort of single if you like 
single answer to the to the question of how you sort of strengthen your policy making for these challenges. It's a much more sort of systematic set of steps that need to be made. Do you see this transformation in the practice of security economic policy making and bureaucratic reform already underway, whether in the UK or elsewhere? Or is this a journey that we're kind of coming to now? Or has this been a journey that we've been on for some time? So I think it's a journey that we've been on for some time. And I think, you know, you can point to good examples. And indeed, when we sort of surveyed people, they pointed to sort of good examples of innovation. Um, I think a lot of us would say, actually, the way in which countries approach 5G was, um, you know, we can debate the whys and wherefores of the outcomes. And, and it was a very difficult, some of it was very difficult for those that involved in it. But actually, there was quite a lot of innovation in terms of how you made a genuinely sort of cross-cutting decision on that. I think the same would apply as we started thinking about introducing new inward investment regimes, and definitely the same would apply in terms of how we went about implementing sanctions or, or developing and then deciding on sanctions against against Russia. So what we found in our work are some actually some really interesting examples of innovation all over the all across different parts of the world. We've looked in Europe, we've looked at Japan, Australia, Singapore, the North America, and in all of those areas you see really good in, innovation going on. What I think you don't yet see, though, is the sort of systematic, becoming sort of systematic and the sort of step change that in that you quite often see each case being developed as sort of almost again from scratch, relying heavily on sort of individual entrepreneurship or sort of ad hoc structures. And the, the challenge really is how do you, how do you capture that innovation that's taking place and systematize it, uh, uh, across the system? And what role do you see people and and culture as a part of that systemic change that's needed? What are the types of people that we might need in public service to shepherd some of these transformations in how we approach complex policymaking? Yeah, and you, you touched on culture and people there, and I think they're both they're, they're, they're slightly different in the sense of I am, um, you know, we can risk getting into a sort of... Uh, uh, undergraduate sort of seminar on the sort of balance between culture and institutions if we're not careful. But I think, you know, I, I think we've found very distinct cultures across these different security and economic domains. We've also found, um, though, very good will to try and work across them. I don't think there's a sort of magic wand you can wave to say our culture is now going to be different. Uh, rather, it's about saying, what are the underlying enablers that help drive a sort of change in culture? And as I say, that's that's about sort of where integrated policymaking is just instinctive. And certainly I think it's my view that that people are more than sort of systems and structures actually are absolutely key to that and what their experiences and expertise are. And I think we will, at least in the UK, we do need to reimagine what excellence looks like in our system and in particular around championing people with expertise and experience in leading complex, cross-cutting, Policy making challenges in complexity and uncertainty. And sorry, lots of sort of words there, but that, that's what we've got to get better at. And that is a sort of thing all the way through. It's all the way through about saying what type of leaders do we want to have and what sort of experience do they have? It's also at the other end about saying actually what common set of skills, common sets of understandings do you want everyone to have? So that when somebody comes in working in economic policy or security policy or or in in the diplomatic service, they learn enough about each other's areas that at least they can sort of talk the same language uh, and and collaborate. And then it's about saying how do you incentivize between the junior people up to the senior a sort of 
a career path and a cadre of people who have experience of operating at that at that interface. So there's not a single, there's no, no sort of one thing I would do, but there's a there's a sort of strand of things that are all about trying to develop that that sort of that experience of people who can, if you like, straddle the traditional interfaces. And it seems like when it comes to questions of technology policy, there's also probably a need to bring people into the public service that have that deeper scientific and technical understanding but can straddle that with the strategic policy dimension because I think there are a lot of challenges within governments right now in grappling what these technological changes mean and their implications for policy. So having having a cadre of experts too that can support those broader um, cross-cutting policy experts I think could be really useful. I definitely agree with that. And you know, one of the things that's sort of interesting about this sort of intertwining of economic and security interests is it also raises quite interesting questions about the sort of interface between the market and the state. And we could say quite a lot about what that means for policy, but what it definitely means is um, some interesting implications as well for how businesses and governments work together. You know, the other thing that's been incredibly striking in doing the work I've been doing this year is the extent to which these geopolitical questions that we've been talking about from a sort of public policy perspective are absolutely at the top of um, the agenda in boardrooms as as well as sort of commercial judgments for, for businesses and a really strong desire from business to have a different relationship with, with government. You know, I think it's, I, I grew up in a sort of world where it was quite often about, you know, Government needs to step back, if you like, and, and leave it to the leave it to the market. And what's and you know, quite times where that's right. But what's sort of interesting in hearing business talk about these areas, including the very senior people, for example, in the US and others, is a real desire actually for government not necessarily always to sort of step in, but for government to sort of step alongside and to have a deeper dialogue. And and that's right, actually. That's there's part of doing these policy areas well is about understanding. The sort of inside of the market, which um, which business is best placed to bring, with the, the sort of secret intelligence inside that government on the security side can bring, and it's all, all the way through how you develop policy. That a sort of a deeper partnership between business and government is absolutely key. Absolutely, and I imagine too on things like AI governance, also academia and civil society. You know, depending on the policy problem, there's a, a set of stakeholders that government needs to partner with really closely. I guess in wrapping up the conversation, I'm really interested in the key um, lessons or or changes that you might champion when you go back into the civil service, taking into account all of the excellent research you've done over this past year. Um, So, I I mean, I think, so this is going to sound a little bit glib as well. I mean, I think the thing I would take back in is a is there's a confidence in the in the problem solving power of policymaking, and you know we can come on to some of the specific things that I think we need to do to be to be better at that, and we've touched on some of them in what we've just what we've just been talking about. And I think my my top three would be the point we've just talked about on people, the point we've just talked about on business, and then actually the bit we haven't spent so much time talking about, but is around the role that technology can play in enabling information to be uh, um, um, a much better uh, a much better enabler of, of really good 
really good decision making. But what all of those are about, I think, is having faith that actually good policy making can can make a difference. And it makes a difference, especially at times like this, when you've got a sort of stable environment and you've got a set of a set of formulas that you can follow, it that that does a lot of the work for you. When those things are in flux, when the, the sort of formulas fall away, the process becomes much, much more important. Um, and having external confidence that the process is good becomes more important. So I think that's the main thing I would I would say is that is having confidence that really great policy making can make a big difference. That's a great note to finish on. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing your insights and the lessons you've learned. I think there's some fantastic messages in here for policymakers, business and others in the community alike. So thanks again for making the time and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you, Jennifer. Really good to see you again and good luck with your own studies as well. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.